Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Hope you had a great holiday, and we are back in the new issue of Rolling Stone Magazine, the one with Bono on the cover. I have a story on a band called Greta Van Fleet. And if you haven't heard this band, you already heard them, some people might say, because they sound a whole lot like Led Zeppelin, at least on some songs. Although as I got to know them and their music better, I may have taken a step back from that comparison. But still, let's hear Highway Tune, which was their first single, which is distinctly familiar, I would say. Let's take a listen. So here's the thing. They do have, as I said, a familiar sound, but I saw them live at Bowery Ballroom in New York while I was doing this story, and I watched them sound check, and I spent time with them. And say what you will about that familiarity, these guys are an amazing live band, and they really know their stuff. One of the things that was really strange was talking to these guys who were all between the ages of 18 and 21, is they were all dropping references like Vanilla Fudge and Free and Howlin' Wolf. As I wrote my article, it's like they were bred in the lab of some classic rock-loving mad scientist. It almost feels like you're being punked because they're so young and they have such a deep knowledge of not just classic rock, but of blues and roots. So I thought today we'd talk a little bit about Greta Van Fleet and also play extensively some of my interview with them. And to just put it all in context, I have on the phone Stephen Hyden, who's one of the first uh, rock critics to write about this band. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Good. So Greta Van Fleet... You, I don't think, met them. Have you seen them live? No, I've only seen uh, like clips on YouTube. Uh, they've only played like big cities at this point. I don't know if they've done like an extensive tour yet, uh, but they don't even have a full-length album out. They have a double EP called From the Fires. That has eight songs, six originals, and two covers. Uh, one is actually a really cool cover of a Fairport convention song uh, called Meet Me on the Ledge. And the other is a somewhat ill-conceived cover of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come, which probably wasn't a great idea. But Stephen, live, I mean, I, I must say, like, they were incredible. I was as cynical as anyone, perhaps, when I heard how familiar their sound was, but these guys are really talented. And one of the things that you wrote in your piece on Uproxx is that quote-unquote normal people are coming up to you and just being like, dude, what about this Greta Van Fleet? So what? how did that work for you? What were you hearing from people? Well, uh, the band has actually gotten a pretty good push on Spotify. You know, they've been featured on some playlists. And uh, I think they have some songs that have already gotten six, seven, eight million streams, which for a band, again, that doesn't have a full-length album out yet, uh, that hasn't yet had a huge amount of press attention, you know, that, those are pretty impressive numbers. And, um, yeah, I just started hearing from, I said normal people. I, I guess I mean people who aren't on the Internet all the time, people <laughs> who don't necessarily read a lot of music websites or anything, just people that uh, are just sort of casual music fans. Uh, I've already sensed some enthusiasm for this band, and I think it comes from people who are looking for you know, a certain kind of rock band that isn't all that easy to find these days. And I, I think they fit that template better than any other band right now that I can think of. 
You mentioned in your piece the band that I now, after getting to know them, think is the best comparison. I think both you and I, our heads went to Wolfmother, who was a band from a few years ago who was doing kind of a Led Zeppelin imitation, you know, which is probably a little unflattering. And they were they were highly inspired by Led Zeppelin. But now, after really getting to know them and their influences and listening closer to them live, et cetera, et cetera, I would compare them to the Black Crows. And you were comparing them in the sense that the Black Crows were a revivalist band that was getting a lot of attention back in the 90s. I would actually compare them even musically. I think live they sound a little bit more like the Black Crows. Actually, I would say even more specifically, what they remind me of was when the Black Crows went on tour with Jimmy Page and played a bunch of Zeppelin songs, which I happened to see. And that's what it reminded me of, which is really interesting. Anyway, I mean, you were cynical at first about this band for obvious reasons, but detail those reasons for me. Well, because uh, especially their first EP that came out, it's so derivative of, of Led Zeppelin. Like, I know that they've talked about how they they listen to a lot of blues music and a lot of the music that Led Zeppelin was inspired by, and I think that they've tried to maybe play down those comparisons. But, you know, it was so Zeppelin-esque that it was hard not to feel like, okay, is this just a rip-off band? You know, or are they really doing their own thing? And I have to say that one of the things that won me over with them is their age. You know, these guys are, you know, between the ages of 18 and 21. And I mean this as a compliment. There's an element to them that it's a little like watching a dog play a piano. You know, <laughs> the fact that there's these young guys that play this bluesy rock right out of the 60s with a lot of credibility. I mean, they, they're really good at what they do. Uh, it, it's kind of amazing. And I think I'm more forgiving of the derivativeness of their music because they're so young. Like, I, I would expect that a year or two from now, they could be doing dramatically different things just because you change so much between the ages of, like, 23 and 21. But like you said, I think they have the chops, and I think they have some songwriting ability. And as they move along the path, I think the originality will, will, will develop over time. But for now, I mean, even if you just think of them as like a as like a Zeppelin tribute act, they're really good at it. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, they execute it really well, and I think they deserve credit for that. So they are three out of the four members are brothers. Josh and Jake are twenty one year old twins. Josh is the lead singer. Jake is the guitarist, and Jake is the one who, in my discussions was most explicit about really studying Led Zeppelin. He studied a lot of other people too, though. In fact, he really likes Paul Kossoff from Free. Uh, he really likes a lot of things, Hendrix. But he said he studied Jimmy Page so closely that he claims that he figured out how he thinks. So the, the other ones I kind of believe aren't necessarily the biggest fans. So then there's also the drummer who is not related, Danny Wagner. And he also, he actually seems to prefer a Carmine Apice from Vanilla Fudge, but Carmine has stylistic similarities to John Bonham. That said, I mean, you know, they're, they're very aware of the Zeppelin thing because I was wondering how sort of annoyingly self-conscious they would be and how, how much they would shy away from it, but they were pretty playful about it, which is exactly the right approach. In fact, uh, you know, we met at the Strand Bookstore in Manhattan, which is 
pretty damn close to the house that's on the cover of Physical Graffiti. And I actually had this thought in advance that we would just wander over to the Physical Graffiti house and I would kind of be like, hey, look at that, and just see how they reacted. But in fact, within like 10 minutes of talking to them, one of them produced a picture of Josh, the front man, sitting in front of the Physical Graffiti house. So it's not like they're, <laughs> they're not running away from this. And the drummer, Danny, in The Strand, one of the books he picked up, he was looking at the 33 and a third book at Led Zeppelin 4, which I just had to laugh at, you know? So it's right. it's cute. And they, they really do know their stuff on a level. There's a point in the interview I'm going to play in a little bit where they go through the different kings, Freddie, BB, and list them all. And it, it, I really can't think of a young band since the Black Crows who might do that, you know? And the other thing I found really charming that I don't think is in the interview we're playing is that one of the contemporary bands that meant the most to them is the Black Keys. And it turns out, you know, I wrote a cover story about the Black Keys in 2012. And it turned out the cover from that cover story has been hanging up in the garage where they formed and did all the practicing for the band the entire time. So at that point, how could I not like them, you know? <laughs> well, and, and how amazing is it that, you know, like when you get older, you feel like, oh, 2012 isn't that long ago. Exactly. But for for age, it's like, that was when they were in middle school, and that was a really formative thing for them. I mean, I think one thing that that this underscores, you know, these these kids being into this music, is the fact that you know not every kid is listening to what is happening right now. I you know I, I think of myself when I was in third, when I was thirteen or fourteen, I was really into classic rock, and I listened to classic rock radio, and I was interested in that. Nowadays, it's even easier to get into that stuff because Spotify you know, or any streaming service, you know, you can listen to an entire discography of Led Zeppelin or Free or any of these, you know, great uh, British blues rock bands of the 60s and 70s. You can become an expert in that stuff in a relatively short amount of time. So, I, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that 18, 19 year old kids would be into this kind of thing because it's certainly there for them if they want to discover it. It's a, an amazing point, Stephen. You're absolutely right. You know, I was struck by the fact that they were actually a little old man-ish to, possibly to a fault that they would admit. In fact, the first quote of my story is that we're basically a bunch of old men, Josh says, because I ended up wanting to argue hip-hop's merits with them because they were dismissive of basically everything that's happened in music since like 1979 and I'm sitting there getting offended at these kids for being old fogeyish which is a very strange sort of setup but you know listen they they come by their um they come by their beliefs honestly I think it probably would be to their benefit to understand what's good about hip-hop I mean certainly I was explaining to them as they probably know that the Black Keys are huge hip-hop fans and you know took from that but at the same time like they're young and not everyone has to be musically woke on every single point. And, and your point is well taken, Stephen. Not all kids are into what kids are supposed to be into. I mean, they said well, that they, they played their high school dance, which was only a couple years ago. And the kids had never heard this kind of music, but they freaked out. They loved it just by pure energy. And that was one of the things that maybe kind of scratched my chin and go, well, what if this band becomes huge? Well, I was going to say, I mean... They came to my attention because there already seemed to be um, a fair amount of buzz about them and also so industry support. I mean, I think, again, the Spotify support that they've gotten already is a pretty crucial thing, and it's what separates them from a lot of rock bands, especially indie rock bands, who um, don't particularly stream that well. You know, like we've had, like in 2017, there were a couple instances of indie rock bands having 
number one records or t- or top five records, and most of their sales were were physical sales. They didn't really have a lot of streams. So it, it seems like there's a belief maybe in the industry that this band can be big. So you know we'll see. I mean, but there does seem to be maybe a little bit more support for them in the infrastructure of the music business than there is for a lot of rock bands. Totally. And I will say that one of the things that convinced me that they were way more than just Leds Up on Copyists was this cover of Meet Me on the Ledge by Fairport Convention. You're just like, who are you? Where did you come from? It's insane. But anyway, so I want to hear this this song, which is uh, Meet Me on the Ledge. You know, I, the only other real cover I could find of it was by Counting Crows. <laughs> Bizarrely. And that wasn't bad either, I have to say. But let's, let's take a listen to them. I wish they would cover a Rush song. I bet they've never even heard Rush, but they would kill it. I was just thinking about how, you know, Sandy Denny from Fairport yeah. Convention sings on Let's Up 1-4. You know, she sings on yes. uh, Battle of Elmore. So I, w- I wonder if that's how they got into Fairport Convention or if they're so in the Zeppelin mindset where they're like, we're going to be influenced by the same people that influenced Zeppelin. So we're big Fairport Convention fans now. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to to think about with them. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they're, they seem really well-versed in the music of the past. Just to kind of talk about your hip-hop thing, too, these guys are so young that they could tomorrow become huge hip-hop fans yes. and just be totally obsessed with that and then become like a Rage Against the Machine type band. You know? Who, I, 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 I'm just saying, like, with a band this young, yeah. I think the potential to make, like a, you know, an abrupt change... Um, is not only likely, but I, I feel like that's probably going to happen at some point to them, and I'm very curious to see where they go with that. You know, I will say, if these guys can get on stage at the VMAs or the Grammys or something, then it is on, because they're, they're just deeply impressive on a, on a pure talent level. But, Stephen, before we move on, you mentioned two or three other young rock bands that you're really into, and you, you are really a rock true believer in an age when people aren't necessarily looking at new rock bands you are, and I think you deserve a lot of credit for that. One of them was, was Gang of Youth. Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, they're a band from Australia, and uh, they're a huge band in Australia. They, you know, they, uh, they're, they're the last record, uh, which is called Go Farther in Lightness, which is one of my favorite records of 2017. And that was the number one record in Australia. It was battling at the top of the charts with like Ed Sheeran and people like that. And uh, it was nominated for uh, the Australian equivalent of the Grammys, I, I forget what, I think it's the Arias. Right. Uh, and they they got like seven or eight nominations there. So they're a huge band in Australia, and I would liken them to, if the National was a little bit more, uh, if they had more of the scope of like Arcade Fire in the funeral era. Yeah, let's, let's take a listen to What Can I Do If The Fire Goes Out. This is the sound of a soul in tune To the savage desire for a soulmate and then let's do one other, uh, which is uh, Jeff Rosenstock. What's the deal there? Yeah, he, he's like not super young. He's like 35. He's been making punk rock records for a while, but he's kind of recently come into the mainstream. And he put out a surprise album on, on January 1st 
uh, called Post. And, you know, it's just a really passionate record about the current moment that we're in. It's a great record about sort of Trump's America that isn't too preachy. It's, it's ultimately like a very celebratory record. But, you know, this is sort of like if you're looking for a Bruce Springsteen record but with more of like a basement punk rock feel to it, you're going to love this record. Wait, didn't you just describe the Japan droids? <laughs> well, I love Japan droids too. Yeah. But this is one guy and not two guys. Oh, okay. So yeah, let's hear USA by Jeff Rosenstock. We've been talking to Stephen Hyden about Greta Van Fleet and more. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. And we're going to play some of my interviews. Specifically, I'm going to play this interview that's with uh, Josh Kiska, who's the front man, and his little brother, Sam Kiska, who's 18. Josh is 21. And let's hear what they had to say. They start by just explaining their origins, and which is basically there's three brothers and then an extra guy, Danny. And let's hear me and Greta Van Fleet. Jake and I are twins. Right. So we're five minutes apart. Right. I'm, I'm the oldest and he won't forget it. Right. <laughs> I won't let him, you know. Right. Um, and um, Sam is three years younger than we are. So as of now, we're, Jake and I are 21 and Sam and Daniel are 18. Danny was in Sam's grade and he, he, we had a drummer. That, we, that Jake met, uh, he was new in high school and we're hanging out. Yeah. And Jake was like, you know, he was in jazz band with this guy, played the drums. And so he brought him in, in his, to the garage where we would play music. It was generally Jake who was playing guitar and I'd be on drums, you know, for fun. And, or if the family was together or their friends were together and there was music, I would sing, you know. Um, and, uh, and I came out then with, with Kyle. Kyle, yeah. Yeah, he was like a new kid in school. Then Jake always brought him home, and then they would play, like, it was kind of like, you know, the Magic Potion, like his album? Yeah. It was kind of like that kind of style right. stuff, just guitar right. and drums. It was, you know, really cool. So I think that kind of inspired everybody to, you know, start playing around with it. Yeah, I get them started coming out and singing. It was 2012. Yep. And then Sam, Sam came out, and Jake taught him a few things in the bass flat, probably like horribly. And, in the wrong tuning, you know, yeah. the bass is supposed to be A, E, D, G, and C, I still don't know, but, um, <laughs> it, you know, like the bottom four strings yeah, of the guitar, yeah. and then he tuned it D, G, B, E, like the top four strings of the guitar, so I had to relearn all my stuff <laughs> after about two months of playing. Yeah, that was a convenient start, <laughs> so you would call that. So, yeah, I think it was her mother. She didn't say they look like a bass player. You know, yeah, you know, yeah, which is like, what are you trying to say, Mom? She kept she kept telling me that because, you know, they, I guess in her head, there was every piece of the puzzle out there. And, you know, I was just like probably 12 years old. She kept saying, you look like a bass player. After about five times. Well, she, I was thinking you know, long and lengthy and he had issues yeah. just coaxing it, you know. Yeah, mom put the band together. I guess I guess some of that in reflection. Your sister should have been still on drums, and I know. I think she tried. That'd have been really cool to have a flute player. She was playing flute. Jake was playing flute in band during high school, which is like you know Ian Anderson. If you were to pull it off, 
Where's the music place in your parents' house? Where everywhere. We started, I think, yeah, everywhere, honestly, yeah. everywhere. But we started in the basement and then moved up to the garage because there was more space. They got too loud. Yeah, and then <laughs> more and more equipment started. We started acquiring more and more equipment and having a place to fit it. So we brought it in the garage, and then eventually we would have to bring that carpet so that it would pad some of the sound. But the, so it was just a slow evolution. But now it's like a recording studio out there. There's so many amps and guitars. We have like 30 or 40 guitars and a bunch of different amps and stuff and a couple different kits. Yeah, so, well, so Daniel you know, came just, in now. That yeah. is where we kind of looked at. Daniel came in. Um, he was a friend of, well, I don't know if you guys were friends. Yeah, no, he was in your grade. We met, we met in first grade. And, you know, I don't, I don't think we really started connecting with each other until about middle school. I don't know that I'd ever even talked to him. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they're different grades. You guys, they're literally, we, yeah. we were fresh when they, when they were seniors. Right. And, well, except his dad was the fifth grade science teacher. So I'm you finished. did have, you did have Mr. Wagner. I did, yeah. But... In, in middle school, we started realizing that we liked the same music, which I guess is where our, our relationship kind of took off. You know, and then we started t- we started showing each other like cool like old Beatles recordings that were never released, and you know, just different kinds of stuff that we thought was interesting. And so that's kind of how he got into this scene with us. And then he started coming over and like playing with us. Well, that was just it. Yeah, he, he would learn all of the riffs he was initially. Um, a guitar player, you know, and he dabbled with all these other instruments. It's like Sam, you know, it's like initially a bass player, but he dabbles with all these other instruments. Um, and so, yeah, so he learned all of the riffs that Jake had, that, that when we, we were kind of playing with Kyle the first year, when we kind of, like, 2012 would be like what we call Mark's the first year of the initiation of the whole thing, you know, and he would go to the shows, Daniel would. So he would come over from time to time and he would play Jake's riffs and Jake would be so intrigued that somebody cared enough to learn those things, right. you know? Right. And that was the first, you know, thing. It was eventually Kyle's health, I think, became a bit of an issue. Um, and we had to get Daniel, to, we had to get somebody to come in with the drums. We were, I think, at a biker gig. Yeah, it was a biker gig in the middle of the, in the, middle of the week. And we played a few of those. Shit. Those were always wild. It was like it was like you know it started heavy raining. We had, oh, yeah. we were running off of a generator, just playing rock and roll wow. music to these bikers. And it, it eventually turned out that they were all at the clubhouse, and it was just our band like out there. They were all out on the porch watching from a distance. So was, and then there would be the really drunk ones laying in the grass. <laughs> so it, on it, was, it was really wild. It was like this, you know, it was like this coming of age for us, like all four of us together, really. We really clicked when we were in that arrangement, and it Wait, was. So did, did Kyle like, collapse mid gig, and Danny was there, and he jumped on stage? What are we talking about? It? Kyle was having like pain. She had an ankle problem, yeah. and it, I, you know, it's just got to the point where I think he wasn't as serious about this as we were. That was another so, thing: his his drive or his ideals didn't line up. It was more of a hobby. You know, I think that one thing that hasn't changed since the very beginning for us is that we're still having fun doing it. And we get up on stage and we're having the time yeah, of our lives. Yeah, there's a great to... deal of the, the, just purely the sensation of making something authentic and, and that moves us, you know. And none of that stuff ever seems to get in the way. I yeah, mean, honestly. We, get to, we get to play for hundreds of people, thousands and of people, people every night. People so often to... misinterpret that. They always yeah. come backstage and expect that there's going to be women and cocaine and things because it's rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all sipping on our tea time. <laughs> yeah. Walden or something, you know. I don't think it, it doesn't... 
it doesn't apply so much to to us as we are now. Uh, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> because there's a lot of things. I forget we're, we haven't reached the asshole stage. <laughs> there's lots of things that can get in the, in the way of music. And I guess so, all of those. Shit, it's an emergency. You just had Cole Daniels. He was at a golf tournament because he's a very serious golfer. You know, he was on the team and he was like, "What? Great!" He was like the somewhat best state in the state or something. Uh, anyway, yeah. one of those things. So he came in and it was like, "Oh, this is it." And I don't think we ever played a gig with Kyle after that. So you already like knew the songs, obviously, kind of. Yeah, you did. <laughs> we, we played co- like old covers. We played old covers like Cream stuff and like I think a couple old Bad Company the Jam. And we did our original stuff early on. And you know he just kind of like sensed all of the all of the movements and stuff. So it was it was really incredible that feeling to be you know the first time playing with that arrangement. It was it was magic. We named Greg Bentley later. Had you was that ever a previous name? No, I don't think there was any really previous name. I mean, we never really settled on anything. Mm-mm. No, it was just we had we had a, our first like real show coming up, which was Franklin with Auto Fest, and like tens of thousands of people coming to town. And we they shut down like two miles of a wow. state highway right down the main road and park all the cars. They have a bunch of bands playing, and somebody gave us the opportunity to do that. And, and we thought, well, then we're really gonna be really like, yeah, settle on. We need a band name, then you know. So right, 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 right. It, it didn't come until the morning of. So Kyle had come back from lunch with his grandfather the the, the, the day before the show, <clears throat> and we were, you know, we were uh, rehearsing or whatever. And he said, "My grandfather dropped me off. He said he's gonna go chop wood for Gretna Van Fleet." I thought that would be a cool band name. I said, "Well, yeah, that is a great band name, but we'd have to take the N out, which we did." That was kind of it from there, and I, I don't know. At the beginning, we would like all covers. A lot of covers. We would we wouldn't want to play a gig with if we were doing some original stuff. So we always had original stuff. We were always writing it. So what was the actual cover set list? Like what was on the? I don't know. Really early on, I know that there was a Jefferson Airplane song on uh, that we did, or and there was Janis Joplin because those I wanted to do. Yeah, and those did, are I guess we did some. Which you know, which Jefferson Air, Airplane? Then? Um, I think it was White Rabbit. And Janice was, uh, I'll take another little piece of my heart. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it was... And then well, there was Cream in there, too. Lots of Cream, yeah, like Outside Woman Blues. Wow. I think even, like... That's a deep cut. White Room. White Room, Sunshine yeah. I Love. Oh, so. White Room I liked a lot. Though. Lots of, you know, like, what else are we going to play? And we really dug back into... Like the reasons that we got into music, lots of old like blues standards. Yeah, we would. Yeah, we would. Which do like that. one that we uh, rolling and tumbling we used to do the Willie Dixon. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and <clears throat> we really wanted to do smokestack lightning and you know all that really cool oh, stuff. Yeah, and yeah, so we stuck with one that's evil. Yeah, nice. And which uh, we're gonna play tonight actually. Nice. Yeah, so, so it's the one cover in there. You know, I think it's only right to pay homage to you know our roots because that's really where we. I'll get along the blues. Yeah, it seems to be that that, that glue, you right. know, because it's everybody. It's, you know, Sam will come from a jazz world, and I really like oh, this very more like psychedelic or world music, you know. And Daniel seems to be very folk oriented, which I like. And Jakey's very, very rock and roll. <laughs> and so when yeah. it gets down to it, that blues thing is where we can all kind of call the spinal cord of the biology of this thing. Yeah. It's a disgusting comparison, but yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty fantastic <laughs> line. But yeah, no, it's like earlier you witnessed me poking fun at their inability to listen to different kinds of music. Yeah, and uh, so it, we really do come from 
all different backgrounds and you know we all come from you know soul funk r&b uh motown oh, yeah. that was what we a lot of the stuff we grew up on yeah so like the, we were listening to the Allman Brothers, but we listened to uh, Sam and Dave, and, and like Joe Cocker and Wilson Pickett and Booker T and the MGs. This is the stuff our father would play when we were in the car all the time. The very first thing. That was all we knew. You know? There were two songs that I can ever remember like wanting to listen to and like singing along to. And one was, Taj Mahal was another. Yeah, oh, Taj Mahal was a big one. Yeah. But Mustang Sally, right? Mustang Sal, the Wilson Peck. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Wilson we all really like that. So say but the first, the first two songs I ever remember wanting to listen to were "Ramblin' Man," you know, the, the almonds, and "I'm Looking Through You" off of Rubber Soul. Uh-huh. So uh, I, it's just interesting, see, like seeing the direction. I that do we all remember take. that was a. I really liked that one too, the Rubber Soul track. That was something. That's always oh, we would want. Our, no, play that one. Play that one. You'll sing along to it. Yeah, Dad always had Rubber Soul in the car. We always loved that album. Yeah. I just remember, yeah, a lot of the blues guys, too, was surprising. I think that was just kind of what, you know. And Jake really, really got that. And I kind of was really struggling to understand that because I really liked the, the soul stuff. <clears throat> and I didn't quite get the blues stuff so much. Yeah, but like, and I grew into it. I really did. And then it's like you can't separate yourself from it. <laughs> because we were listening to stuff before we were even born, you know? And so it was like all the all the Kings, BB King, Albert King, Freddie King, and then like Buddy Guy. That was our first concert, Jake and I and we were in strollers into Buddy, Buddy Guy. Guy. Yeah. Well me and Daniel also went to a, a, a Buddy Guy concert just a couple years ago. And it was the most awesome experience because we went down to like like down by the side stage and he had one of the like the, the cables, the, the Bluetooth or whatever those are. And he just came walking out into the audience, playing a solo, and we were this close to him. I was like, you could hear the strings on the guitar this playing. Was, we were like, oh my god, that's pretty magical. But yeah, so I guess all those roots really—that's where we get along. I guess that's what really makes the magic happen between us four. Because I think we feel, you know, a bigger connection than I, I think most people do on stage. You know, being like also around about this, 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 um, this, um, coral, the four of us being together is the fact that all of us really look to each other as, um, <clears throat> inspiration, just the same as you would look to another musician, you know, that you may not know. But it's like, uh, Sam's ability to write melody on the, on the keys or to get these huge orchestral sounds. <clears throat> and like very good, you're like a tone man to me. And then Daniel on the drums has some ability to go exactly where you want to hear this stuff go, and with a total complex this complexity and understanding of it. And Jake, his ability to be with this very complicated uh, riffs that just I think the thing about Jake these, that separates. I think the thing that separates Jake, things going on except here. you know that's what it sounds like. But exactly. the thing like, about Jake is that. You know, what separates him from pretty much every single guitarist is the emotion that he puts I into the guitars. Snippets would just be out there. You know, yeah, just try flying somewhere <laughs> off in the cosmos. And Jake, I think, is, as far as influences go, I think Hendrix was 
just that I remember him as a kid being so engrossed and so... Well, there's something so true about that. Yeah. And that's the fact that you can't... That's what they take to the electric guitar right away. My father said, oh, you can't play that thing. You're not going to know how to play it. Here, play this acoustic for yeah, you. Yeah, he took and then away... I'll let you play the electric. He took away his electric guitar for a few months until he could play acoustic. That's all he was doing was cranking the gain and just sort of... Right, right, right. And my father said, oh, that's nice. Here, try this. <laughs> yeah. The story I've already heard is that you sort of didn't know that you had this high part of your voice... Until it just came out one day, or is that no, not kind really? Of, yeah. yeah, it's true. I didn't. I was just more. I think when we started this, it was more of a blues sounding vocal, probably. You know, because I didn't know really how to get that sound. But when these guys were so loud, it's like you got to find a way to shoot through that volume. You have to be, you know, you have to have a, like this this high end compressed sort of sharp loud thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked. You know, I mean, all the monitors in the world couldn't get enough volume to me over the sound. <laughs> this, you know, thunder in the room. You know, huh? Maybe that's why, like Rob Stewart and, and yeah, I started doing it in the first place. I, I theorize it's probably something to do with it. You would wanted to do like acting and stuff, like you weren't necessarily. Yeah, I wanted. I I I wanted to be an actor initially, and then I and then I was I think always filming with uh, with whatever I could get and, and we would see their grandparents and I would shoot with an old black and white like boxy camcorder thing that I think he had color at one point but it was just shot <laughs> and uh, so that evolved into like an, an addiction what? you know and I, so yeah so I wanted to make film as a director really and, I, and it, I would do that it was what I lived eat sleep breathe you know I mean that was that was definitively it for me and it was like a s spiritual practice in us and um, this singing and it was part of you know I did, I did some um, theater in high school and um, we did some musical stuff and I, and I was lucky enough to in my four year high school career get two leads two years and I was singing in those musical parts what'd you play? I was really Wonka in one which I really nice. really liked and then I got Cat in the Hat in the other <laughs> Different, very both very out there kind yeah. of roles. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that I was very, very, very like Johnny Depp. Yeah, it was very appealing yeah. to me. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was something. It was just like that was towards the time we were doing those productions. I mean, we were doing the band, you know. Um, so they kind of linked over, and it was two different things. And it was all vocals. And eventually, this just kind of manifested to the point where it's like I can put that on hold. And to enjoy this, you know, because it, it's very, it couldn't, I couldn't not do it because it feels so, so right, you know. Um, At what point did it become clear that this wasn't just like a little thing, that this could be like a real thing, this could be a real band? Yeah, I think after, at, when we first stepped foot in the studio, I mean, I think a lot, a lot, like a lot of people, we didn't really know how to record a song. It was it was very much you know kind of throw and go every time that we, we recorded before it was kind of like okay we'll lay this down yeah it was a, it was what we really call it a workshop sort of yeah the conveyor belt conveyor belt yeah get them in get them out so when we got into Rustabelt which is a very serious studio and uh, I kind of I guess a creative threshold and I think Al really taught us how to record a, a real song. Which involves a lot more elements than we, I guess, ever thought. What was the biggest thing you didn't know? Like, what were, what were the, the biggest revelations to you? I guess just the way that you have to speak through your instrument to get it to sound right on tape or, yeah. or 
digital. You know, it's 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 a very interesting kind of thing to be able to to translate what you're doing here goes to the amp or it goes to the board, and then to be able to translate it. You know, all the mics like there's no other reason why you would be miking like that unless you were in a recording studio. Right. And so yeah, I guess just all the all the little techniques, and I guess the I guess the effectiveness of formatting songs themselves, like, should we have a double chorus here, should we chorus out, or should we guitar solo out, you know, so it's just these totally crazy things that I guess people who don't record music ever think about. I guess a lot of it too is some of the exciting stuff was how to get a certain sound that you wanted, or how to to, um, get an effective part, you know, if you want the chorus this big. Well, then you're going to have to add these parts. So you're going to have to, you know, put put this in sonically or that, and to get that to achieve that 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 kind of you know golden archway. It's, and it's, it's like you don't you don't have to go all out, you know, because a lot of the time that just sounds terrible. No, light and shade. <laughs> it's, you know, it's yeah, it's like to be more delicate with your instruments, your singing, your drums, you know, I think it really translates better into, mm. into recordings. So I guess doing things in a kind of more gentle way or pulling back sometimes makes uh, a song a lot more effective. So just a, a lot of lot of little things like that, you know, really influenced her songwriting. And so that was really great that Al brought in a bunch of kids that I think he saw a lot of, I think he saw a lot of hope for us. Yeah, and he took it very seriously. So it was, it was um, you know, uh, kind of a we we felt that somebody who had been doing this for so long <clears throat> to take us seriously and to take what we were doing seriously and to, to work that that many hours on creating something that could be just as perfect as he could make it was uh, very uh, we were appreciate we were appreciative of it. You know, because every time that we went in a recording studio before that, it was, it was kind of like we came out and we listened to the recordings, and the recordings we felt weren't as good as how we played. For us, which for us, recording is very important. When we demo songs, we 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 demo them exactly the way we'd like to hear them on the album, and then I think that that's up for interpretation. For a producer or anyone who, who has an opinion of which way it could go, sure. What was like the first original you guys had? You know, Highway Ten. Wow, which is why it's Five interesting. Years ago, yeah. When you listen to Black Smoke Rising, the EP, it's it's interesting because Highway Tune was a single. Highway Tune was our first yeah. thing out of the gates, and it's it may not be the most like technically crazy song. And, but I think the emotion is there. I think that, you know, it is very much Greta Van Fleet and it really shows where we were at that time. And it really defines the basic foundation of our sound. So I think Highway Tune was a, a, a great choice. And then you listen to Black Smoke Rising, which is on the same EP. And that is the song that we wrote when we were formatting and, you know, recording the other songs. So and then it turned into the title track. So it was, it was the most contemporary on the first four songs released. Yeah, so and then we, that was kind of one. I guess a few months later, we felt like Black Smoke Rising wasn't done, and so we we did it again from from the fires. How do you deal 
in your heads with the fact that so much of what's going on in music is is, is pop or hip hop or it sounds nothing like this. Is there anything you try to do to sound like now, or is it? I think that a lot of people, I mean. a lot of new bands go out to mimic what they hear on the radio. Yeah. And if you do that, you're literally already five or six years behind. Yeah, yeah, you're And I don't, I don't, honestly, I really don't think that we know any of the trends that are going on right now. I don't <laughs> think we care. That's funny. I, yeah. So it's just, I don't know, I think is is our really such an old man. Honestly. Yeah. You know, we do, yeah. we do what we want and make it sound like how we want, we want, we make the songs like we want to listen to. Part of the reason we were starting to play music was it was like kind of well we wanted to create stuff we wanted to hear that wasn't wasn't really out, you know. Um but yeah that was just a thing, you know. You you can't you it's a great statement and you're going back in time because somebody else is gonna set another trend and, and before you know it it's just like it's gonna be one of those things that just doesn't doesn't translate anymore. It's not um What's the word? Uh, celebrities want to be what all the time, and then they fade into relevant. obscurity. Relevant. Yeah. She's yeah. no longer relevant. So, the, when did someone first hit you with like, "You sound exactly like Led Zeppelin"? Like when? <laughs> when the cat got out of the bag. <laughs> I would say right after we released Highway Tune. Uh huh. And yeah, the original recording, though I think. Yeah, the original. Interesting. Recording. Yeah, which was was not the Rust Belt recording, the one that people hear on the. Album or the EP, but <clears throat> that is a good question because we didn't get that for the first year, I don't think. Well, we got a lot of different stuff, you know, people always hear something that they never heard before and they have to immediately assess it and try to rationalize. Right. You guys sound like credence, man. I mean, you got all kinds of stuff. I got horrible, I mean, you sound like Arlo Guthrie and I'm banging my head on the wall. <laughs> Arlo fucking Guthrie. <laughs> So you've been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and that was me talking with the rising rock band Greta Van Fleet, specifically Josh and Sam Kiska, the singer and bassist slash keyboardist of that band. We will be back with more Rolling Stone Music Now next Friday at 1 p.m. here on Sirius XM's volume. In the meantime, you can download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to us as a podcast. And maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. But probably iTunes. We could really use some nice reviews on iTunes. But this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. And we will see you next week. Next week.